Welcome to Behind the Curtain Project. I'm your host, Kelly Voss. Together, we have a backstage pass, and we're going to take a glimpse into what is actually going on behind the curtain of people's lives. All right, well, at this point of the story, I am pretty much unsure of, yeah, I don't even, I was there, but have zero memory of anything. So Amanda, you were there. So if you could please share with what happened next. Okay. So I do remember thinking something was wrong that night that I let you in. I thought I could definitely tell you were really down, really sad. I remember getting up the next morning and I was cleaning because I know that having a clean space does help you. Um, I was actually outside and I think I was cleaning my car out a little bit and I had found an obituary of a friend whose life was taken in high school. And so I'm literally in the process because this his anniversary was coming up in like a week. And I'm in the process of trying to photograph this obituary to prepare for a post for my social media stage, you know, trying to prepare this post because I found this obituary and I am standing right next to your rose bush, which looks straight at your door, your front door. And I see you come out of the front door and you're not even looking at me. You're just crying your eyes out and holding your phone saying, please, please, please. And I'm like, really confused. And why are you handing me your phone? Why are you crying? I'm thinking it's probably dad you know, and I walk up to you and and your eyes are not there. I mean, you're just, you can't look anywhere in particular. I just remember you're really, your eyes were messed up. I mean, you looked really messed up and you were wobbling and just sobbing and you handed me the phone and turned around and went right back into your room, got right back in the bed. And I answer the phone. I'm like, hello. And this man identifies himself. He's like, Hey, my name is I don't remember what his name was. We'll say Fred. You know, my, my name's Fred and I'm with the suicide hotline prevention. And your mother attempted to take her life last night and she woke up and she's very upset. Um, she's very upset that it didn't work. And she's told me that she wishes that she didn't wake up this morning. So we've got to get her some help. And I just didn't seem real. And I remember my first emotion was I was really angry that you would do that. I think that was my first thing. And I was like, she did what? And he's like, no, 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 no. You need to calm down. That is not the approach we take. And I'm like, well, how could she do that? How could she leave us? Like, I was really upset. And he asked some questions about where you were. I went and found you. I was like, she's in her bed. She's crying. He asked if, you know, can I call my dad? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I can't. I can call her dad. So he instructed me to call Papa and to call 911 and get you some help that you needed to get to the hospital and that everything was going to be okay. So I hung up and I called Papa first. I think he told me to call 911 first. I called Papa first because I needed support. I did, you know, I just felt very alone in that moment because you were completely out of it. I mean, there was no talking to you. You were crying. You couldn't hear anything I was saying. So I called Papa and I think that he was there in maybe three minutes from across town. I mean, I think it took him maybe five minutes total to get supermanded over and yeah, and get over to the house. I think he was there before the ambulance got there. Honestly, we called 911 and we got the ambulance there and you took an ambulance ride and um, he followed behind you. And I remember he instructed me to find absolutely every single pill that you had. 
and you went off to the hospital and I dug through your drawers and your closet, your shoe boxes. I dug through everything and I found absolutely everything that you had and I brought it to the hospital and we found the empty bottle. I think it was Valium, I believe. I think so. Yeah, it was. And you had a new bottle too. And we're glad that you didn't find that one because you had a brand new prescription, but you had taken an old expired one. And um, we went to the hospital and uh, I just remember I was making a lot of phone calls. I was talking to a lot of people, you know, your mother, your father. I talked to dad. I was talking to Austin. I think I talked to Mandy. I know I had to call Mandy, your assistant, and fill her in on what was going on. It was just super hectic. And me and Annabelle, we really felt super alone because nobody showed up. I mean, I think Papa was the only one that actually truly showed up for us. Um, Nobody else did. I really expected dad to show up and he didn't. Austin couldn't. He was in college. He had classes. And it was tough talking to the doctor because the doctors made things real. And then I have on the other ear, I had dad who really didn't believe that it was real. He thought that you were bluffing, that that was not something that you were capable of. So that was in my ear leading up to the doctor coming and to say, you know, your mother's toxicity levels are so high. Her blood alcohol content is so high that it almost saved her when it shouldn't have. That was a really, really tough place to be. And I think that me and Annabelle were the ones that kind of had to just take the lead, take the reins and drive that carriage for you. And you were in the back, you know, really, truly dying. And Hmm. I remember giving that bag of medicine to the doctor and you were laying there in the bed and they were looking through everything, all this, all the medication you had access to. And I remember when they pulled that other bottle of Valium out, they're like, Oh, this one would have worked. And you're like, give that here. And like, you, you were joking, but it just still showed that even after, like, I think you were in the hospital for two days at that point, that even after two days, that was still your thought process was like, well, I'll still take that. You know, it was not like a God saved me. And Kelly, you know, has a light about her life. We were in a really, really, really bad place. And because of that- I don't remember saying that, but I'm not surprised. Yeah. And then that was probably, that day was the day that they were talking about, you know, sending you to a psychiatric hold center. So, you know, they were talking about how they were going to send you to a hospital, like a, a mental health hospital. But first, you know, they had to let you spend some more time in the hospital that, you know, the emergency room, because, you know, pumping your stomach wasn't an option. Your everything was already going straight through your bloodstream. So really, they just had to keep monitor of you and make sure that nothing took a turn based on how your body had already worked is was already working through that medication. So you had to be monitored. And that was that was tough, too. Because it was like, you know, I'm telling dad this, and I'm, t- I'm, trying to get that support from him for him to understand how real it was. And I don't know what his perspective is of that situation, but in that moment, in that time, that week, it was almost like he was in denial. And I just kept expecting him to step up and to show up there and to show up at the hospital or show up in Raleigh because that's where they sent you. And he didn't. So that was really tough. Me and Annabelle were already going through so much with you over that past summer and all the strife that we had had. And it was just like one knock after another. Well, I've heard just from the, you know, the chattering that goes through different avenues that, you know, I was faking and that wasn't real. And, you know, I'm not a suicidal person. I mean, that's something that I have never talked about. I've never used. I don't throw that around. So I truly wanted to die. That's the reality of where I was. And so 
for him to be in denial about it. Maybe it was because I wasn't one to ever say I want to die or I'm going to kill myself or anything like that. And so I, you know, I don't know what his thought process was, but for you and Annabelle, I'm assuming it was just hard to not have the extra support of, you know, really anybody being there for you guys, except for, I mean, Papa was there. Just in that very beginning, yeah. But I mean, yeah. we were navigating on on our own, and you're you're right. I mean, he I do remember having a phone call to him saying like, "No, Dad, this is real." No, she really did do that. You know, I remember saying that to him. She really did do this, and she's lucky she's alive. You know, this is a miracle that she is alive right now because anybody else that would have killed them. So this is absolutely happening, and that was just mm-hmm. it was. It was crazy. I mean, we did have Papa's support in the very beginning, but it was just like, it seemed like after that initial breaking news, then it was just, we were on our own. And I think that that really kind of that theme maintained for the next couple months after that too, was just like, it's just me and you girls. Like that's all we have right now is each other. And Austin could only do so much, but he was in college and he's about to graduate and he's trying to maintain straight A's so that he can keep his scholarships and his funding. And so, I mean, he didn't have the capacity to step up there, but they, um, after a couple of days, after your levels were, you know, where they could be and you were safe physically, they were like, all right, your mother's not safe mentally. So we're going to send her <laughs> somewhere for a couple of weeks, you know, and it's not going to be anywhere close. And they sent you to Raleigh. I mean, that was so far away. We had to go stay with uh, my friend, Laura. She lived in Raleigh. I think we were up there for two weeks. Both of us out of work. You were out of work. Nobody was working. You know, it was just trying to pick up some pieces there. We couldn't see you. They would not let us see you. I think until like week and a half that you were in there was before we could see you. We could talk to you on the phone for a little bit. I remember when you were first intake, there was like a naked man trying to like show himself to you in the intake lobby. And we were just horrified by that. Like we couldn't believe that they were putting you in a place where my mom's getting flashed by, you know, men and she's not safe. You know, it was just like this just overwhelming sensation of like, we've got to bail her out of there. And we spent two weeks trying to bail you out. And everywhere we called, they were like, it's no better here. You can get her over here, but it's not going to be any different of an experience because all these places suck. They're all underfunded, understaffed. This episode of Behind the Curtain Project is sponsored by the Voss Home Group at Keller Williams Connected. Here at the Voss Home Group, we've been serving the Carolinas and beyond for close to 20 years. Our mission is to bring buyers and sellers together in a win-win situation for all. At the heart of the Voss Home Group, relationship, respect, and reliability is who we are. We are also amongst the world's largest referral platform. What that means to you is the Voss Home Group can help you with all your real estate needs, no matter where you live. From north to south or east to west, let us be your resource in connecting you with the very best agents in your community. Find out more information below. We look forward to connecting with you. I remember obviously going, getting taken to Raleigh because I was taken to Raleigh in the back of a, what I want to say, paddy wagon police car. I mean, I was, I had the, the metal bench I was sitting on and I had the metal screen that protected, you know, people from the back to the driver. And so, I mean, I I realized I was, I was being treated as if I was going to 
endanger myself or endanger someone else. And it was just a really awful experience. But at that point, I really didn't even care. I was still pretty numb from the from the whole just situation. I was exhausted. I didn't have the capacity to think through even what had happened, what I had done. I had no choice. You know, it wasn't like they asked me, hey, would you like to go to a mental hospital? It was you do something like that and that's where you get put. And so when I got into this facility, I didn't get out of bed for days. I didn't want to. I didn't even want to interact, you know, because, of course, they they have the sessions and they have the group time and then you have your one-on-one with your doctors and there's all this stuff that you're supposed to do while you're in these types of places to, to get better. And uh, I, I didn't want to participate in any of it in the very beginning. I don't remember talking to you girls on the phone or really anybody, but, and of course I had no idea that behind the scenes you guys were trying to get me out of there because I had no access to a cell phone or seeing anybody. So. Yeah. We called a lot of different facilities, just telling them about your intake experience. And they're like, well, she's not going to be any happier here. I think there was one facility we found and it was like, oh, sure. This is a great place. And it's like 15 grand up front, you know, like you had to really pay to put you in somewhere nice. So we just had to kind of ride it out and, and stay in Raleigh for about a week and a half, I think was when we got to go visit you the first time. And I think at that point you had already started kind of started to participate. But we, I remember we went in your cafeteria, you were in slippers and a robe and you were just <laughs> had your little glasses on and your hair was up in the bun and you had your folder full of, of you know, colored pictures that you had colored and you had a couple charts that you had made about like what is important to you, what brings you joy, what do you live for? So it was really nice to see you talk about those things because you had at that point, I think having some sort of turnaround in your thought processing. And I know that you had met somebody too that had influenced you. Yeah. And I learned pretty quickly that I wasn't going to get out of there unless I participated and started to do the work that it took in order to get out. And it was such a miserable place that I I really wanted to get out, despite the fact that I was still in a very dark, desperate place. I just knew I needed to get out of there. And it was going into some of these sessions where it was, you know, like a group setting where people would share almost like, you know, alcoholic, not anonymous. Hey, my name is Kelly, and I'm an alcoholic. It was almost like, hey, I'm Kelly. And I tried to kill myself. And so you would hear these stories. And I think what was just such an eye opening, you know, turnaround for me was, although yes, we had the flasher and there was definitely a a good share of, of crazy type people in this facility. There was also quite a few just, you know, regular people. There was, you know, an attorney that was in there, a I think a landscape owner, you know, these are people who had like real jobs and real families and had spirals and just fell into, you know, deep, dark depressions and, you know, did what I did. And so it made me feel like, okay, you're not crazy. You are a normal person who fell down the rabbit hole and didn't know how to get out and you didn't ask for help and you didn't stretch your arms out and you didn't know where to turn And all these things, because when you're on the stage, you don't want to admit those things. You know, you don't want to come out and and 
ask for that kind of help because it makes no sense to say it, but you know, it would make me look weak. It would make me look, you know, not the powerful woman that everybody thought I was. And I, and so, and at that point too, I think I didn't even, I didn't even care enough to ask for help. That's, it had went too far, you know, to, to ask for help. And I think that's one thing that we all can take away with from mental health issues and people who suffer in depression is they need help now. You know, if we know somebody who's suffering in depression, you know, we, how, how can we help now and how can they recognize how to get help? But we'll put links and stuff in this podcast for people who need help and give some resources. But yes, there was definitely a a turning point where I did start to engage in um, the sessions and participate and pay attention to people's stories. And that really allowed me to give myself, I guess, permission to be alive and realize that just normal, hardworking, everyday people have these struggles and I wasn't alone in that. And so I colored a lot. <laughs> you mentioned that, you know, you're, you're not given a whole lot of, of sharp objects and things in, in, a, in a situation like that. So but crayons yes. and coloring pages and things like that were plentiful. And so I would sit and color and color and color. And, and I just allowed my mind to be free from all the things that had brought me to that place. I knew I I just had to let it all go. And so I kind of just, I focused on the picture I was coloring and making sure it was bright and brilliant. And I wanted to make it as pretty as I could. And that was literally, I, I took it moment by moment like that in there. And, you know, pretty soon I began to, you know, see things and recognize patterns and, my eyes were opened somewhat with the doctors and the help that I was being given to understand, you know, how depression works and all these things and the spirals and triggers and, and all that stuff. And then ultimately I was approved, you know, and cleared to safely get to come home. So mm-hmm. that is, it's yep. <laughs> right that away. Is, that, that was a that was a good that was a good feeling you know to get out of there and but it was also a very very scary feeling because at that point I didn't really know who knew you know what the repercussions were going to be how I was going to face it how I was going to explain it you know the disappointment that I had you know obviously caused you kids and the family and you know you do something like that and when somebody passes from a suicide, it's just tragic. And that loss is just tremendous. I know because I have been a part of people who have had, you know, passed from suicide. You have too. But to survive that and have to now come back from it, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of shame, but there was also a very bright beacon almost, I guess you could say of, there's a reason you lived and it's time to dig in and find out, you know, why you're here and you can't stay in the suffering. You know, suffering is, it's a hard place to, to get out of because in suffering, you just feel there's no other choice but to suffer because what you want is gone 
and what you have is maybe not what you want. So you just suffer. But I can't have what I want. So I had to let that go. I didn't want to stay in suffering anymore because suffering sucks. And suffering is not where I wanted to live anymore. So how can I get out of suffering? Well, I had to do work. I really, 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 really had to do work. And it was time for me to dig in with both feet, hands, heart, soul, and really begin to try to figure out my purpose and why all this happened. And now what do I do with it? That was on your mind was when you got out, you were like, I don't know where I'm going to go. But all I know is I got to leave here. Like I have to leave this place that I've been. And I'm not talking about the hospital. I'm talking about that emotional state and place that you had been in. You're like, I don't know where I'm going to go or how I'm going to get out of here, but I've got to get out of here. And that was really, I think, the first time that you, I heard that you wanted to get out of there. Because I think that leading up to that, you were like, I have every right to be here and I'm going to be here. And that was kind of your mindset for a little bit. It was like, I'm, I'm angry and I get to be angry. And when you got back, you were like, I don't want to be that. There was no validation in my anger. That was the part that was, I think, so frustrating for me. I needed to be validated. I needed your dad to validate my pain. I needed that then. But what I realized is I wasn't going to get that validation. And many people who go through things, suffer things, devastating situations, don't often get that validation that they so deeply desire. And so when I came out of, you know, the hospital, realizing that this is probably something you're not going to get. And how can you move beyond it without having it, (laughs) you know, without getting that part of it, there had to be a different way. And for many, it could be breaking open a Bible and reading a Bible verse. For me, that was not the answer at all. I needed something more. It was it was a deeper thing for me. I needed a deeper connection to something in this universe. And yes, God's important and God's such a huge part of, of my life. But I needed an understanding of something that I had never been through before. I, I needed to have an understanding of why I suffered this and why this happened. And well, then there was the other how event. I couldn't heal from it because I can't change it. So how can I heal from this? And that's really when the light went on and things started to change. You're asking, how can I let this go? And how can I move on from this? I think that that very first step for you, once you were back home was, I need to unbox everything. And you really started to physically unbox things because you had about 300 boxes from your house that was in your garage and your attic that you had been putting off facing. And that was, I think, part of you being able to learn how to let it go was by opening everything up and, and actually unpacking it and looking at it in its face and not running from it and hiding from it and drinking it away. Yes, you're right. I think one of the first steps I took was it was just time to to, to purge, you know, just purge it all and let go of 
this idea, you know, because I thought the stuff, I, I thought the things, you know, were tethering me to what I thought was happiness. And all I knew from the memories and stuff was was in the things. But really, they're in the people and the memories and stuff. So I, I did. I let go of the stuff. And that was the first step. It's a big step, too. It was a really big project. And you had to really face a lot of memories with that. You also had to look at things that you spent a lot of money on that you busted your butt for to get. And that was hard for you because I think it was that busting of your butt that kind of led to your demise. And then here you are selling it in a yard sale. So I remember that was really tough for you. Like it was, there was some really good days where we had a lot of momentum going through boxes. And then there was days where it's like, we would get one box open and it was, you were just like, I can't do this right now. Cause it was so hard. I mean, you really had to face pretty much everything in that stuff. It all represented it all. Like, I mean, it just was yeah. aesthetics. It was, you know, memorabilia and it was photos it, it was boxes 28 of years <laughs> yeah yes absolutely it was things you picked out that were a part of a home that you know was so comfortable to you and you had to really face the fact that that was not there anymore so, but it was monumental that garage sale was monumental and i remember how good you felt after it was all over with Take a bow. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Behind the Curtain Project. 